0: Uh, did I tell you about my seven and a half hour Game of Thrones game? Oh, no, you did. Yeah. I don't think I told you about this. No. Holy f Yeah. That's too long. Seven and a half hours of anything is too long. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we were in Las Vegas. There were other things to do. Well. Yeah, so. I've seen like four
1: Cirque du Soleil shows in
0: that time. <laughs> <laughs> I, in fact, saw Celine Dion, and it was magnificent. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Edward Lovell, developer here in our Boston office. How's it going, Edward? It's going well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have... I would say a very interesting history with regard to this company called ThoughtBot. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, you are here as a developer. You've been here now for uh, six months, eight Uh, months?
1: Coming up on a year in June, late June.
0: But you have actually uh, worked with ThoughtBot in a couple of capacities in the past. So can you describe a
1: little bit the the path that you took and, and where you are now? Yes. I came to ThoughtBot first as a design apprentice, did that for a summer, and then went off to work at a couple other jobs, including doing some freelance independent work, and now I am back as a developer. Interesting uh, transition there. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Smash cut to
0: the end suddenly a
1: developer. Yeah. Uh, There's
0: a dot, dot, dot ellipsis. (laughs) Sure. Dream Uh, sequence. So I want to ask, how was your experience with the apprenticeship? Because I think that's an interesting thing that we have here at ThoughtBot.
1: It, It was super interesting. It was very positive. I mean, I did realize sort of over the course of a couple of years that I did not want to be a designer. However, the apprenticeship itself was incredible and I learned more about design than I ever have in the rest of my my career combined, I think. But it was super great being able to work alongside people. You have a mentor, a different mentor each month. You're working on actual real client work alongside those mentors. And it introduced me to consulting work, which I had never really done before. It was amazing. Fantastic. I love the apprenticeship. I think it's such a
0: fantastic aspect of how we work here at ThoughtBot and how we're, frankly, able to bring a lot of really talented folks onto the team. When I think of how many different people that I work with now day to day that started as apprentices, there are a lot of them um, (laughs) across both design and development. Uh, And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we are actively hiring Now, if you are interested in applying for an apprentice position, note that we no longer list them separately on the website. Instead, you'll just apply for the relevant designer or developer position, and we'll make the determination as needed during the interview process where the best spot for you might be. This is a recent change that comes on the heels of a few other changes intended to reduce bias in the hiring process and make sure we afford every opportunity possible to folks who are applying. So please send in those applications. We'd love to get to know you. Um, But again, I I think it's a fantastic
1: program. And Edward, I I hope you'll co-sign that. Highly recommended, co-sign. Oh, and I also forgot, during my independent developer time, I wrote a book for ThoughtBot. So I've been in and out of ThoughtBot and adjacent to ThoughtBot for many years. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Quite
0: the storied uh, history. And just to actually name it, the book that you wrote is oh, yeah. Domain Name Sanity, True. which is all about DNS and DNS lookups and C yeah. names and A records and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it seems like
1: a black box that we kind of just flail around in for mm-hmm. a while and eventually a website can be visited. But I wanted to nail that down and figure out, mostly for myself, honestly, to figure out how it all worked, how to predictably configure things, how to set things up. And I think I did an okay job, at least. (laughs) It's my first book, so.
0: But you're a published author at this point, and we will certainly point folks to it. But at this point, as of a few months ago, we released all of our books, along with Upcase and everything else, for free. So that is now available to the people of the internet, should they want to read it? Yeah, act fast, discount forever. (laughs) (laughs) DNS is one of those things that when it goes wrong, I just hate that cycle, (laughs) because DNS caching happens at like seven different layers with different... TTLs, and and it's really
1: important that it has that caching, or otherwise it would fall down. The internet would fall over real hard. But yes, it's pain. But there are there are ways around it. You can tell it no, definitely don't cache. Look it up for real, and so it's good. I
0: feel like the best practice would probably be set the TTL to one minute when you're first configuring it and then dial it up after it's correct?
1: Yeah, that's that's a very common strategy okay. for switching domains over.
0: I'm saying that because I've never done it. And every <laughs> time when I screw it up the first time and then I'm waiting an unknown amount of time for the various caches to reset themselves, I'm like, man, I really wish I set that to one minute.
1: It is a tricky thing too because you almost never have full control over the stack there. You mm-hmm. you are not controlling the root domain servers and you can't and you can't. It's hard to fake that. Yep. And so it's very hard to do a trial run or test or, to anything the best you can do is have like a, a side domain that you just kind of use as a sandbox um, mm. which is what I do but yeah it's still tricky and you never know if it's quite going to work and there's lots of subdomains to move over and redirects and it's all sorts of things Yep. I didn't actually plan to dig into this so much, but now I have a question for (laughs) you. I forgot that DNS is a thing that I know almost
0: nothing about. Do you need www or do you need a subdomain in general? Is that still a best practice or is an Apex domain okay?
1: The tricky bit is the Apex domain. So there are different types of records. There's an A record, which points directly to an IP address. Mm -hmm. And there's a CNAME record, which can point to essentially another domain. So if you're using a service like, say, Heroku, where you point towards one of their domains and they figure out based on, oh, you're coming from www.thoughtbot.com or something, we know to serve up this app versus this other app that's also, quote unquote, hosted on that domain. Mm -hmm. So the tricky part is that A records, since they are only IP addresses, Apex domains, which is a domain without a www or anything on the front of it, can only use A records. So you can't have a non-www, a a bare, a blank domain point towards a C name without some weird hackeries that most DNS providers don't offer you. Does that make sense? It
0: does, although I thought the answer had gotten to most DNS companies at this point have adopted the hackery and so now it's actually like Although this used to be a technical limitation of the internet, it's been worked around in a sufficiently consistent manner that it's fi-
1: Like we say thoughtbot.com, uh-huh. not www Correct. or any other variant. Yeah. The, is it bad? <laughs> the thing with it is you can't. So yeah, so what you're talking about is often called alias records or a name records. So you have this apex domain, which you can assign to your sign with an a name or alias record and that will allow you to point towards a more domain-style thing as opposed to an IP address. The problem is there is no one standard way to do that. Hmm. There is nothing in the DNS spec. So, for example, DNSimple, which I think we use a lot, has a way of using text records alongside your CNAME records to sort of route those around and and do the right thing. Amazon has with their... their, uh, Route 53. Yeah, Route 53 has a way of doing it. I don't actually know how they do it, but they have a, I think, slightly different way of defining those things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of places, and especially a lot of popular places, have solved that problem, but it's not solved consistently. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it doesn't feel great to me. So I actually still try to avoid it when I can, just kind of on principle, I guess. But. There are plenty of ways to do it. So when you say avoid it
0: on principle, the mechanism for avoiding that, do you have www in front of your personal domain?
1: I think so. I think I do. I, have to, I actually have to check. I don't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. I don't visit my own website that much. Right, and it's one
0: of those that it will automatically redirect to the whichever you've I defined to be so. the canonical.
1: Oh, you know what I do? I don't actually host my website on Heroku. I have self-hosted and spun up my own server. Oh, so, so there's an, an IP the address? Words. So there's an actual IP address. You have an IP address? I, well, I mean, yeah. IPv4? I believe so. Those things are precious. I know. Why aren't um, we all out of I'm them stealing them <laughs> it's my fault sorry <laughs> just hoarding
0: them off to Ugh. the side all right well that was a fun adventure <laughs> yeah. i appreciate you digging into that with me it's again it's one of those things that i learn just enough once every 6 months completely forget it by the next time i yeah. need it i should probably get hold of that book you have it's okay i'll read it
1: to you ah oh. we'll do a live reading story time.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of coming back to your history with ThoughtBot, one of the other things that you did is I believe you were part of the origin story of the Giant Robots podcast, our first and canonical podcast here at ThoughtBot. Is that true?
1: That is true. I was in a meeting with Chad and Ben Orenstein, however many years ago that was. They wanted to start a podcast and I I thought it would be a good idea to also start a podcast and coincidentally both sort of thought that at the same time. We had a little meeting. I bought a bunch of gear. We set up the first thing, which I think we still even have some of that gear Mm. today. It's still going strong, which I'm proud of. Edited the first bunch of episodes. I don't remember how many, probably in the 30-ish range or something like that. And then it's gone on since then. And now of course, Tom is editing all the episodes and doing a great job.
0: Yeah, with the exception of we do have a secret internal podcast. True, uh, that you are the host, editor, director—you're you're everything for this. Yeah. Um, Mostly because Tom doesn't have time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yes, we have a, a bunch of podcasts. It turns out, which I think podcast is a fantastic medium. I personally really enjoy. Like, I find blog posts really hard to write for me personally. Yeah, I tend there's... to overthink them, but a podcast. Just kind of works.
1: I find I'm in that same camp where I think out loud and s- with speaking and hearing that that helps me think, and it's harder for me to write it down in like a diary or a blog post or whatever form. So yeah, we we have this internal podcast called Fantastic Bots and Where to Find Them, and the goal of it was to interview other coworkers here at Thoughtbot and just get to know other people. And people have other lives outside of work and sort of a company, I don't know, I guess just like a company almanac Mm. of of people so you could get to know other people. And then also I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons style type games outside of work. And so I also throw some kind of Dungeons & Dragons related monster at them for them to fight in a real life scenario. And it's a lot of fun. And um, we keep it internal because I want people to be able to talk with their voice because I want to get to know them as a person, not with sort of ThoughtBot voice. Not that I don't have my own opinions, but I am like right now speaking with ThoughtBot voice. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing. But I want people to be a little more free to, to say whatever they wanted to say and feel safe about it.
0: Yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to them and, and getting that extra little lens into some of my colleagues, seeing how they respond to Dungeons and Dragons characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think it's really interesting using a podcast as an internal communication medium. Mm. It's not something that I've seen much, although I have there there was a tweet that was particularly popular for a little while that was making the rounds of what if the onboarding to the company was just a like six episode podcast that's like, all right, here's our values, here's how we do this, here's how we do this. And there are some complexities that I think inherent to that of like, how do you keep it up to date, Mm. et cetera. But like, I don't know the idea of like a fireside chat sort of thing or fireside Chad, as has been uh, (laughs) discussed back when Chad was doing monthly chats with each of the offices, but that idea of of the more conversational, slightly looser. um, But again, I think the internal um, keeping it safe, it's just, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. And frankly, we've got all the gear, so yeah.
1: Why not use it? Yeah. yeah. And they're really short They're and they're very informal. I barely edit them if at all certain episodes. So there's tons of just false starts and weird. And that's part of what I like to just because again, it's about that personality. And I think you can get a lot of that with that
0: style. I will say there is a topic that you and I have discussed and uh, I think we disagree pretty solidly on, which is how much editing is the right amount of editing for a podcast. Absolutely. And I fall on the side of, I like a nice crisply edited, uh, let's get rid of some ums and ahs uh, as I just said, ah, uh, uh-huh. uh, let's clean that up. Let's remove <laughs> breaks and things like that. But you like the more raw form.
1: It's definitely a personal preference. I would rather be a fly on a wall than go to a performance is sort of how I think about it. And so I tend to not listen to a lot of the NPR style or serial kind of podcasts. They just, that's not what I want to consume. I would rather just like hang out with a bunch of smart people talking. And I, I don't know, personally that, that works for me, but obviously there's a huge market for this other side. So I get it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a spectrum. Like there are certain podcasts that I would prefer the more conversational style and then certain ones that I enjoy the, the more edited structured version But yeah, well, to be a fly on a wall to a conversation, you and I were chatting earlier this week, We recently started a project or we're working on a project together and I recently joined. And as part of that, we are working on laptops that the client has provided to us Mm -hmm. Um, for security and other network access and and reasons like that. We had to work on their machines, but we were given fresh machines to start with. And so it was very interesting to look at like, what are the things that I absolutely cannot live without on a machine? Because neither of us have dialed it up to 11 and put everything on it, but there's a bunch of foundational things that we needed. So I figure we can sort of trade off, go back and forth,
1: but I'm interested in what's on that list for you. Okay, so the first thing I wanted was a window manager. It almost didn't really matter which one I'm using. Right now, I'm in a weird third state of, I'm using a different window manager at home, at work, and at this client. You have <laughs> Which three
0: is, different window managers? I don't recommend it. And they're all on macOS,
1: right? All are, they are all on macOS. I don't recommend this, but I am sort of trying to transition at home. And so that's that's sort of that break there. And then the client had an approved window manager that I just grabbed because I was like, I just need something. And I've kind of gotten used to it. And it works well enough that I don't feel like I need to switch, but yes, anyway, window manager was a a necessity for me.
0: Okay, well, we're going to have to dig into the specifics, (laughs) because actually on my list is a window manager, but what are the three? Which one is now your...
1: Okay, yeah. Let's break it
0: down. Let's get into this.
1: At home, I'm trying out Hammerspoon, Mm. which for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's a way to use the Lua scripting language to hook into a bunch of internal Mac OS APIs, so... You can write some Lua scripts to move this window here, for example. Or if the application is Chrome, move the window to this exact location and, and ignore everything else. Or whatever window is in front, move to this place. So that's how you sort of use it as a window manager. You can also do all sorts of crazy things, like if you detect you're on this Wi-Fi, mute the sound and also play this YouTube video. I don't know, it's, I'm just making up stuff, but it's just it allows an you an event
0: system for that sort of
1: thing? Yeah, you can okay. hook on to events and you can also hook onto keyboard commands and there's a few different ways to trigger it. It's very complex, but it kind of tickles that part of my brain of being able to configure things exactly the way I want them. And then at work, I'm using something kind of similar called Slate, which is kind of similar to Hammerspoon, although it only does window management. It doesn't do any of the other general stuff, but you script it in JavaScript. So again, you can set things to exactly the way you want it. Because I like my windows instead of quote unquote full screen, I like it. All the screen except for some area on the left, so I can see my desktop icons. For whatever reason, that's just how my brain wants to do it. And so, I, like, no window manager is going to do that for me. So I have set that up. And then at the client, oh boy, I don't know if I even remember. I don't. I know the keyboard commands at this point. Spectacle, I think. I think it's Spectacle because there's little glasses up in the menu sounds like right. right. Yeah, so I use Spectacle, and that's fine. It does the job. It's got a whole bunch of relative movement commands so move this left a little bit or move it right or make it wider or thinner or move to the left screen or the right screen or something like that i should probably try that i'm using divi personally di used to use that one <laughs> <laughs> that's the one where you uh, set there's a big grid on the screen yep. and you just say i want this sort of shape and right you can yeah
0: Which if you're wondering, I absolutely refuse to use that interface because that involves a mouse. (laughs) So I've configured a couple of global hotkeys at this point that I have one for full screen and then I have one for what I refer to as middle, which is I basically have a a bar on the left and right. So I'm not taking it. It's basically because our monitors are too wide at this point (laughs) and I don't want to develop using the full screen because then like Flexbox, flex all the way out. Nope, too much, too much. (laughs) So I somewhat artificially constrain my screen by using that middle space. Um, but again, I never use the clicky bit of that. So
1: Yeah, but be even to configure those hotkeys, I think you have to use the clicky bit of that? Initially, yes. Yeah, yeah. I do but sometimes just the use just the, the mouse, yeah. just as
0: little <laughs> as humanly possible.
1: <laughs> it's a good goal.
0: Spectacle seems like a good option. I, I've heard of all of the others. It's interesting. I've never spent much time trying to configure a window manager. And I think the reason for that is I use basically two applications. One is the (laughs) browser and the other is the terminal. And then from there and this will transition into my first real answer to this, is Vim and Tmux are just core to the things that I do, and I wanted to reach for those as early as possible in this situation. Um, What's interesting is we're actually developing on remote machines, so we're having to SSH in and actually do our development on there, which I have never done in the past, Mm -hmm. and I expected to really dislike it because why am I adding this latency and complexity and it's a separate machine? I'm actually perfectly fine with it. It surprised me how comfortable I found it, but I think it's because I basically live my life on the command line anyway. And so TMUX turns out that'll run on a server over SSH. There's a tiny bit of latency, but not even enough that I really even notice it. But yeah, so I installed my .files and configured Vim and TMUX, and I have almost all of the same level of functionality that I have on my normal machine. I've had to disable a few things and some things just due to the nature of the, the project that we're working on don't work the same. But yeah, Vim and Tmux were core and it's been
1: nice to just have that familiarity. That is a huge advantage to being a Vim user, which I am not. And so I am feeling a little more pain. I can't use the, quite the editor I want to. It doesn't quite set up in the same way. So I have to use this different editor, and I'm a little bit more uncomfortable, and I'm relearning a bunch of shortcuts. It's going fine, but it's definitely – that is a huge advantage to just – Vim is pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. as long as you're on a command line in the Unix world at least, which this is. So.
0: I'll be honest. though, that has not been on my list of reasons that I use Vim ever. Yeah. Uh, Like I know it's one of the core things that like, oh, VI is on every single server. So if you know it, you're comfortable. Turns out if I open (laughs) stock Vim, I'm pretty uncomfortable. I can get around and it's fine, but I've become so accustomed to a lot of things that feels weird, feels broken in some subtle ways. I've actually worked to unwind some of my unique and specific configurations since working at ThoughtBot because we do a lot of pairing and occasionally folks will come over and they'll try and do something on my Vim and it won't work right. I'm like, oh, yeah, I over yeah. I overwrote that core configuration that like, oh, I know that this key map normally does this thing, but now it's doing this other thing. And so particularly Joe Ferris, our CTO, has a way of just making <laughs> – he's not angry. He's just disappointed. <laughs> uh, it's that sort of thing. So I've slowly unwound a lot of those. And thus, stock BI or VIM – is okay, but it was nice to be able to, to get my configuration. But now I finally get to take advantage of that thing that it works on a server.
1: This is a really cool thing about the VS Code Live Share extension mm. is that if you were both using VS Code and you have your own setup, you can connect and the person connecting to you has their completely own setup, which might be VI kind of key bindings or Emacs key bindings or just Mac OS. It doesn't matter what the other person has, the person hosting. You can use whatever you want and a, you are independent and it's great, which is a huge, huge win that we've finally gotten to in this development world in 2018, 19. I'm surprised that I haven't heard of this as a mechanism before, like
0: what you're describing the VS Code Live Share, because it seems... Obvious in retrospect, if technically incredibly difficult, like I imagine, I think that's the problem. it works out that their architecture was worked for this. But I remember hearing about it. I'm like, oh yeah, that. That is the thing, like even teammate, which is sort of my gold standard for pairing, which teammate is a custom build of Tmux that someone is running a server somewhere, (laughs) I probably should understand more of the details, but basically it does like SSH port forwarding or something like that. And then on the two machines, you're able to both connect to essentially the same Tmux session and move around. But whoever's the host, you're in their Tmux. And so whatever custom key bindings I have for Tmux are active. And then you're using my Vim. And whatever I'm using for Vim, that's what you're in. And so this seems like such a better way that each person gets their own normal view of the world, normal keyboard shortcuts, normal build thing. Oh, that's actually interesting. If I have like build configurations, keyboard settings connected to an extension that's not installed, that will probably
1: break. You're getting to a a really good point, which is, There are some things inherent to the model of sharing a workspace that don't quite work in the way you'd expect, or or there's no clear, obvious configuration to do it. It Mm -hmm. seems clear that it's like, I would have my key bindings and you would have your key bindings. That's pretty settled, but- when you start getting into the realm of like, well what is configuration really? Like if I have a split open, is that part of configuration? Should that be mirrored? Where is my cursor? Where is your cursor? Do I follow you around constantly? Should we be working in different files? And there's no clear answer depending on the situation it gets weird, and yeah, like, do you do you run tests on their machine or your machine? What if your thing isn't set up? Which environment are you in? Which terminal are you running? It's very weird. It gets strange very quickly, but certainly for the ninety-eight percent use case, just typing, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> I thought typing wasn't the bottleneck, though. That's what they always told me. Well, <laughs> uh, well so I'm actually intrigued. So if you run tests through this, what does v- it do? Like, whose terminal code opens?
1: So I don't have a setup where I run my test triggered from my editor. So this doesn't come up so much for me. VS Code does provide a terminal and which uses your local configuration of whoever I guess is hosting, I'm pretty sure. So if you were connecting to me and you ran the test, I think they would run on my machine, uh, but I don't actually know cause that's not how I work <laughs> usually. Yep. And I sort of run that out of band. My
0: guess is like there's one host and that's controlling the windows that are open and then keystrokes are passed through and translated into editor commands. I think and that's so, maybe that the mechanism, middle, yeah. but
1: but it is an interesting question of yeah, who's in charge and what does it mean to type a key. Yeah, and you can choose to follow the person or not. So we can be following each other or you can follow me or I can follow you. It's neat. <laughs>
0: Neat if a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you do have to now think about those problems when you are an end user as opposed to never caring because it's just you on your machine always. I'll be honest. When I first heard about this, I was like, oh, cool. Okay. We've
0: solved it. This is done. And I hadn't (laughs) thought any further about it. And now in this very moment, you are causing me to rethink so many foundational things.
1: It is great though. I don't want to make it sound like it's too complex. Like it's, it's a really, really wonderful solution Mm. that I highly suggest everyone at least check out on a, on a Friday or a weekend or something, some free time that you have.
0: We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, This episode is brought to you by CircleCI, the continuous integration and delivery service used by companies like Twilio, Intuit, WeWork, Tinder, and even us here at ThoughtBot. CI and CD are so important for keeping teams building, it's all CircleCI does. They focus on creating powerful, flexible CI-CD pipelines so that you and your team can focus on doing what you do best. Whether you're a company of five or 500, CircleCI can build, test, and deploy your Linux and macOS projects from GitHub and Bitbucket in their cloud or installed on your servers. And anyone can sign up and start building for free, since CircleCI gives both private and public projects 1,000 free build minutes per month. Sign up and start building for free at circleci.com slash bikeshed. Thank you to CircleCI for sponsoring our show. Well, yeah, coming back to our list of the absolute critical things. So Vim and Tmux was my most recent
1: one. What's your next one? What else did you have to have? My next, I think, really big pain point was copy and paste history. That was, especially with code, I've really come to rely on, let me copy this little bit, let me copy that little bit, and then let me transpose them, copy A into B and B into A. There's a ton of that that I do, or just trying to hold it on. <laughs> I made a joke the other day that copy and paste history is the, is the true version control. <laughs> just sort of keep these little buffers in my thing. Like, oh, let me try this, other things. Let me copy what I currently have. Try some experiment. Oh, that didn't work. Just go find that in the copy-paste buffer and paste it right back in. So I use Alfred for that, which is also this general purpose Swiss army knife tool that launches apps and a gazillion other things. But I think I could probably be quite happy with just a copy paste history. Interestingly,
0: Alfred is the next on my list as well. What has been extra interesting to me is the sort of stress test of we're on these new machines, but it's not a permanent thing. So it only makes sense to do the bare necessities. And my usage of Alfred on my day-to-day computer is pretty heavy. I have a bunch of workflows. I've set up things for getting to Heroku or getting to GitHub, or we recently introduced a search functionality within ThoughtBot, and so I'm trying to build a workflow for that. And all of these different things and just lots of tweaks. And at the end of the day, when I installed Alfred on this machine, I set up a set of hotkeys, so global hotkeys to bounce between the terminal, chat, Spotify, and Chrome. Those are the four applications that I want to have, like, quick keyboard-driven access to. And then, so that's a hotkeys-based workflow that I did. Clipboard history was actually probably the one that I felt most pointedly. And so I also had to get the clipboard history enabled. Although, for me, it's much less in, like, Vim has multiple clipboards and things like that. So I experienced that less while editing between documents like in vim but a lot of oh i need to copy this from stack overflow that i found and get that into my editor but i want to copy two of them now i want to have both have the clipboard history and be able to bring both in or a list of things or anything like that but yeah, clipboard history was a huge one and then i have a couple of custom shortcuts for jumping directly to certain urls which I guess you could use bookmarks for in a browser. I think that's how people have (laughs) historically done
1: this. (laughs) That is a classic way to do it.
0: Uh, (laughs) But I really like the um, sort of fuzzy matching of and always, like I get to everything from the same starting point. I like that of Alfred. And then the last one, and this was the one that was sort of, uh, I felt bad that I had to do this, but I got a keyboard while working in the client's office, but it's not a Mac keyboard. They just have... I forget, I think it's like a Logitech or something yeah, like that, but it's right. got Windows keys on it. And so it does not have the typical Mac OS media keys. And so I tried for a while to hack some different things. And finally, I ended up writing a handful of Apple Script Scripts, <laughs> connecting them to an Alfred workflow and some global hotkeys. Did you get a hammer
1: spoon? Uh, would it do that? Does it I think have- so. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's probably just yeah. dispatching exactly. Apple script or things like that under the hood. So I purposely didn't want to go that far. <laughs> no, I'd I wouldn't fr- recommend it. <laughs> I actually avoided, I-, I think you and I talked about this one day and you're like, you just do this or this or this. And you were right about all of them. But I was like, I don't, I don't want to spend that much time with the media keys. There is an
1: interesting ephemerality of our client work where mm-hmm. you were only on it for a certain amount of time, usually in the range of months but not years, so it doesn't quite seem worth it to set up a whole slew of things just for this temporary time. I have
0: a rough heuristic that I use as my guide for when to invest extra time in fixing configuration versus not, and the rule is roughly I need to feel an acute pain, which, granted, that's a bit of a loose terminology, (laughs) but an acute pain three times. Three distinct like days, or like if it's the morning and the afternoon, I guess I'll count that. But do you just want me to start throwing rocks at you? <laughs> Some
1: acute pain.
0: This was like I'm sitting there, and it was just really frustrating to me to have to reach over to the mouse, tab over to Spotify, yeah. change a song, come back. And it, granted, that sounds like a minor thing, but I'm I've noticed about myself that I value so strongly staying in context, in flow. Let me just be in Vim and Tmux and live yeah. there for as long as possible. That when the third time that I was like ah that sound is probably how i would define an (laughs) acute pain i was like ah that was when i actually put in the work and thankfully it was more straightforward than i was expecting i was also concerned it was going to be like two hours of sleuthing around on stack overflow to find the right incantations of apple script which is a language that i am not that familiar with Mm -hmm. not that well versed in but yeah so alfred overall fantastic piece of
1: software it's interesting because I'm thinking I don't know if I have a third thing on my list which surprises me and maybe I will come up with something that I'm just forgetting but I this is maybe the other side of why I don't use Vim is because I am so comfortable and used to all of the standard Mac OS everything and even just moving around in text and going back and forth. So I'm using a different editor. I'm using a different browser even and many of those Sort of global system-wide keyboard commands transfer, and so I am definitely not at quite at home, but I'm not so foreign that I felt much of a need to set up much else. Not that Vim isn't amazing; like it's not <laughs> it's not one versus the other, but that, that's I have always felt comfortable with that, and I've always been so fast at navigating text in the the normal Mac OS ways that I just really kind of want those augmented, not replaced. I don't know if you feel that way or not, but I think I feel
0: the opposite. But I fully get and and respect. Like it, it almost sounds like you're defending yourself here. Maybe and a that little is, bit. That is definitively not. That's not this space. Yeah. That's no, not what you're we're right here. But everything that you're describing, I, I have felt the pain. Associated with doing, like, I'm not as familiar with the system interactions, and there is no consistency between the applications I use. Mm. The terminal's kind of weird. Tmux, yeah. also kind of weird. Vim, also kind of weird. Stack them up on top of each other. You've got a whole pile of weird there. Yeah. And I have spent years honing and refining that, and that's been an investment of effort but it means that like when i go to a new app i'm just like oh how's this app work Mm. there's no familiarity to me the unlike Mm. what you're describing that you've built up or that you've you've sort of embraced that and i think that it sort of fits with the whole apple vibe of things work really well together Mm -hmm. and they are cohesive and consistent and like design guidelines even human race guidelines i have sort of accepted not spending time and embracing those. I basically view my usage of macOS as Linux, but with, I don't know, more rounded corners. And it's weird that I've never actually opted to jump to Linux, like to Arch Linux, which we have a few users of here at ThoughtBot. I think I still do value some of the Apple-ness of it and yet I use so little of it and I've just gone hard in the direction of Tmux and Vim which is absolutely a trade-off there are negative sides to Mm. that definitely it's weird it's weird in there but I've gotten to know that weird and I've become very comfortable with it
1: when did you get your first Mac
0: I grew up with them. My dad okay. was actually a computer teacher, and so like I remember getting the colorful IMAX, the first fancy internet-enabled ones, that I think saved the company, and were like Steve Jobs's and yeah, pretty much. and Jeff Goldblum, if I remember correctly, he was involved somehow <laughs> in the advertising. <laughs>
1: So yeah, I've been on Macs basically my entire life. Okay, because I have two, and I was wondering if it was maybe because I grew up with them, I got more used to them, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. It's very hard to explain why I am the way that I am, Edward. (laughs) Well, and and Thoughtbot has become, I don't want to say less and less Vim-focused, but when I was here six years ago, Pretty much everyone was on Vim. There was it was very hard to find somebody who was not. But the company was also thirty people, and so maybe mm. just we've just grown, and so there's more surface area. There's I think there was also a, few a, a stronger culture of
0: it. It was a cultural yeah. gathering point mm-hmm. for Thoughtbot, and Absolutely. but there are a lot of things that have evolved over time in Thoughtbot, and I also think it's critically important and fits well with the Thoughtbot vibe to not be a monoculture around anything. Like, yes, we have a lot of people that use them, and it's maybe even a thing that we'll lean into and have a voice around, but... I don't want anyone to ever feel bad for not using Vim. And I think I I have a lot of people that I've worked with that are like, oh, so I should obviously learn Vim now, like students that I'm teaching or developers that I'm mentoring at clients. And I'm like, Like it's some prerequisite or something. Exactly, like you have to do that to to get street cred or something. And I'm like, no, that's, uh, frankly, it might be a distraction for a while because you will slow down for a little bit. It's got its own whole unique thing going on. And I think there's a lot of utility in that. But yeah. I would focus on learning the language and the
1: framework that you're working with first and, and solidify that. 100% agree. And even back then, when I was not using Vim back then, no one was looking at me sideways and saying, what are you doing? It was, as long as you get your work done, that's what's important. And it's you use whatever tool is gonna help you do that the best. And that's great. We still think and do that. It's interesting though, everyone that I've given that
0: feedback to of like, no, 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 you don't, you don't <laughs> need to learn Vim, put it off, wait a little bit. They always end up learning Vim. <laughs> I can't stop people. <laughs> My brother is not even in the world of tech directly. And yet he's watched me use Vim. And he basically manipulates text all day because he writes a lot of emails. And he's just like, no, I need that thing. What is this thing that you're doing? I'm like, it's it's Vim, but I, it's weird. You don't. And still he was like, no, no, no. You it need is, to show me this. And it is
1: absolutely its own kind of sorcery of just you you can move so fast if you can think in that way. And it's huge advantage. But I am officially giving everyone permission not to learn Vim if you don't want to learn Vim. COSIGN, COSIGN on the bike shed. It's interesting coming back
0: to what you said of you don't really have a third on your list and your reason for that was that you've embraced normal macOS system things. I similarly don't have a third on my list. There was nothing else that was drop dead critical that I get onto this machine. But I think it's for the opposite reason that Vim and Tmux capture so much of my workflow and world. Uh, and it's actually been a little bit painful on this project because there's a lot of specific configurations that the client has in terms of linting and style fixes and things like that, that I just, they're not working in my editor, whereas you've adopted the the like editor workflow that the client has. And so things are working great for you. And I... I'm enjoying my normal editor experience, and then I get to the end of whatever work I'm doing, like, all right, let's do the lint fixes now. Where do the semicolons go? I can never remember. And that has definitely been a bit painful. But but yeah, nonetheless, I do not have a third on my list. Cosine. (laughs) All right, well, I I think that probably rounds out the conversation since we both said we got to the end of our list here. But I want to switch over, and I want to ask you a very important question, Edward. I'm ready. Is RSS dead?
1: Absolutely not.
0: (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard people say it. RSS, really simple syndication. Is that right? I believe so, Mm Do you want to describe what RSS is and how you feel about it? And then maybe
1: I'll add some color. Sure. I think it is a serialization of text content. So imagine a blog post and you can serialize it into XML, so who wrote it, when was it written, what's the content of the actual blog post, are there tags, is there content, you can serialize all these different things, spit it out into this XML file and then Everyone else, in theory, knows how to read that format and make it look nice. So you don't actually have to read XML. You can read nice formatted text with the author and the title and everything. And it is actually, in fact, supports what podcasts use. Podcasts are based on RSS and just have an audio for their content instead of text. It's just a formal way, eh, a sort of formal way of encapsulating those ideas. There's also Atom. There's also JSON feed, which are ancillary technologies that do very similar things. You don't read the XML raw? <laughs> no, it's weird. only
0: when I'm developing. Because that's just me. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I similarly, I absolutely love RSS and I like when Google Reader shut down, which at this mm-hmm. point was a number of years ago, I remember people, highlighting that as the end of RSS. The end of RSS, not as a technology because it's just an open standard. I don't even know how formalized it is, but it's a, yeah. it's a thing that some people agree there on. There's a spec, like, I don't know who owns it, but yeah. For me, it represents the idea of sort of distributed nature of the internet. And yeah. I don't like email newsletters. Mm. I don't know, does that make me weird? No. I hope not. Uh, certainly you wouldn't say that, that makes me <laughs> weird, but I, I like the pull based nature of RSS. Yeah. People are putting out content and then on my schedule I get to go through and review yes. it all. I can see all of Thoughtbot's blog posts. It's actually part of how I keep up with what Thoughtbot has to say is Same. I read our blog through RSS and I read other folks' blogs and I love that as a way for people to put things out into the world and me to have
1: access to them on my schedule and distributed in async and all those great things. It decouples it, it decentralizes it and it lets people like you said, do things on their own terms. You, know, you can read it when you want to. I can publish when I want to. And there's a middle thing in between. That's just this agreement that everyone has that we're all going to read and write in this way, which is beautiful. It's just how websites also work. And it's also beautiful. It's great. I mean, it's a wonderful world. It is the wonderful world of the web. I mean, it perhaps
0: too lofty, but it's sort of what I view as the dream of the internet, this distributed yeah. place where we can all connect and share things and So core to it. And yeah, so RSS is still out there, everybody. RSS is In case you're not using it. You are for a podcast, but otherwise.
1: It does have some weird corners. Like the quote unquote spec has some ambiguity in it as to like, for example, like how authors are defined. And that gets a little weird. And so then there was Atom feeds, which are very similar, but have slightly different and a little more strict rules. They pretty much everywhere supports both. And there's a third that has recently come out called JSON feed, which is pretty much just what you'd think. It's just that, again, those posts serialize as JSON instead. It's a very lightweight spec, and it's a lot easier to get right as opposed to RSS, where it's a little easier to mess up, and a Mm. lot of feeds can get malformed with them. But the core concept is all the same. Let's agree on a thing, and let's shuttle it back and forth and almost everywhere that supports JSON feed supports RSS or Atom or both Mm. mostly what I've seen is like there is an RSS
0: reader or a feed reader I think they're sort of uh, Mm -hmm. pivoting in in terminology and this is a case where I celebrate being completely non-technical of like I don't really care about the format I just want to be able to read the thing and ideally this software abstracts over that I personally use feedly Mm -hmm. I use Feedbin. is that a desktop app
1: no it's a web app? Yes. Okay. But I use a a reader client called ReadKit that uses FeedBin as the back end. Gotcha.
0: Yep. I will say, though, as you like, I was unfamiliar with uh, JSON feed. Is that, did I Yeah. I, mm-hmm. nah, JSON feed? There's a small voice in the back of my head that, like, The thing that was wrong with RSS or Atom wasn't the fact that it was in XML. No, it is not. And that's a thing that we have done as communities a bunch of times has been like, XML is bad and we need to end it. Here's JSON, it's so much better. And I kind of like XML better. (laughs)
1: It can do more stuff. And And they're different too. Like I've seen things where XML is a document format and JSON is a, I forget what the other term was, but for example, you can't have root level keys that are the same in JSON. But you can in XML, so they're not quite equivalent. JSON is an object notation? Maybe. I think that that sounds right. Yeah, so documents for XML and objects for
0: JSON. And JSON doesn't support trailing commas, and thus I am True. sad. Ugh, and it doesn't yes. support comments, and it doesn't support single-quoted strings. Am I right about that one? I think
1: you're right about that uh, one.
0: And I think some of these actually might have changed. They they uh, have updated JSON at various points, which mm-hmm. is funny, because JSON is a thing that we discovered Douglas Crockford discovered it from within the JavaScript and said, this subset of the language, this is the (laughs) thing. And then we're like, oh, cool, let's build everything with that.
1: Well, I'm waiting for the day, too, when people realize we can use other formats without quotes. And then we all say, JSON is bad, and we must use this third format now. It's, it's just a matter of time, but fight against it, folks. In the classic history of XKCD having a comic for
0: everything, well, there are 14 competing standards, so I'm going to do the correct thing, which is introduce one final standard to unite them all, and, and now, now there are 15, 15 standards.
1: Well, okay, so I think that's all I know about RSS and how lovely it is. It is wonderful. Please go use it. Um, would you like to hear a weird, interesting security hack regarding CSS that I found?
0: CSS and security. CSS uh, and security. Yes, I would love to hear that. CSS and weird...
1: CSS do not mean security.
0: <laughs> well, the first one doesn't. And the second one also doesn't. Also does not, yeah, correct. Okay.
1: Yes. <laughs> so I saw this come up on lobsters. You're familiar with lobsters? Like lobster.rs? Yes. Lobster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes.
0: It's nice in uh, Boston. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is a sort of Hacker News-ish style link website for developer-based concepts. And someone put a link on there talking about how you can use CSS and JavaScript to discover someone's history using the visited pseudo element. So Wait, you can do this? Well, you theoretically could if browsers didn't stop you, Ah. which they do, which is definitely a good thing. So I'll walk you through it. So everyone knows the sort of blue link means you haven't visited it yet and that purple link means you have visited it. So imagine going to a website and with JavaScript looking to see if each link in some set of links was blue or purple. You could then determine if someone had visited google.com or facebook.com or thoughtbot.com. So with the JavaScript APIs that you can check for this, the browsers are blocking those queries they either misreport or don't report in some cases depending on the thing i find misreport so much more
0: interesting of the two (laughs) like don't report seems like the obvious answer but misreporting being like yeah it's yellow
1: uh that's that sounds like a thing that would happen So there's two properties, we have color and then also imagine font size. So we could say for all links that are visited, they should be this color and this font size. And then JavaScript could attempt to query those things and figure out which websites you visited. However, the browser will just straight up lie about the color, it will say it's blue or whatever color all links are supposed to be, I believe. But for font size, you actually cannot change the size of a visited link. And the reason for that is because it could just lie and say, hey, no, actually this is font size 12 pixels or whatever. But instead, you could imagine what if you placed an element next to that visited link and you could actually look at the offset of that other element to figure out if that link was visited or not. Do you follow? Is that? I think, yeah, so what space it occupies. And they misrepresent that they don't allow you to change the font size. Oh, right, because
0: you could then. Oh wow, layers. It gets really
1: tricky. And I was actually—I need to look to see what other things this applies to. Because, like, what if you set the transform, like the CSS transform, or there's plenty of other properties you could try to set and determine based on itself or other elements which was visited. And I don't know how deep that rabbit hole goes. But it's a really interesting little, like, this is so simple, such an easy way to try to determine part of a user's history. And I'm very glad that browsers are doing at least the minimum steps required to block it, even if it's a little strange and maybe not what you'd expect, especially if you're trying to style some visited links.
0: I can simultaneously imagine the afternoon of just hair pulling, being like, <laughs> I, why can not yeah. I not style this? I know that I'm typing it in. And just having that not work. But at the same time, the quiet, hidden work of the heroes that build yeah. web browsers are such unbelievably complicated pieces of software. Like oh I goodness. honestly am
1: astonished that they work at all, that they work as performantly as they do. They approach operating system level complexity. Yeah. People write whole UIs and UI systems inside of browsers, which is what an OS does. Like, that is what an OS is for. I'm almost certain you can run Windows 95
0: inside of the browser now with, like, ECMAScript cross-compiling and Browsers uh, have caught up to
1: 1995 OS level... (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, but they really are just such immensely complicated pieces of technology. And then to imagine like the mailing list thread where someone's like, oh, there's a bug. Uh, we need to be able to query the font size. And some someone with the deep knowledge of the ways, it's like, no, 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 can't do that. But then like you were saying, as we're introducing new properties and trying to move the web forward, I'm guessing there is someone trying to hold that line and say, no, we have, for reasons of privacy and security, we are constantly trying to safeguard. And just like the sandboxing of JavaScript, again, that doesn't seem like it should work. How are we pulling this off, everybody? But we seem to be. JavaScript is a complicated thing in and of itself. But the fact that I pretty confidently can go to any website and unless there's a zero day that I happen to run into, which happens, um, but again, people work very quickly to resolve those. I feel confident that that thing's not going to do anything. Now, if something magically downloads onto my computer, I know not to click that thing. That's Hopefully. on me. But yeah. but that balance of utility and functionality
1: versus security and privacy, and what a line to walk. I'm very glad there are people, honestly, on both sides of that, pushing for the right things because to make developers' life easier makes my life easier, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I want my security and privacy protected. So it's... Thank you to those folks out there doing that.
0: The heroes of the internet. Well, with that, Edward, I think this has been a fantastic, wide-ranging, varying adventure. Yeah, meandering. Well, living up to the title bike shed, I would say. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. Where can folks find more of you on the internet?
1: Oh boy, yeah, you can go to edwardloveall.com, no www, and you can find, I think, probably any link that would get to me there.
0: Awesome. we will include links to that in the show notes. And thanks again for joining us.
1: Thank you. Show
0: notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at, at underscore Bikeshed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at Bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.